growing up, I had a rather uh, singular impression of the Old Testament as a collection of moral stories, because that's the way that it was taught to me. A collection of moral stories. There were things that we would go over in Sunday school. There'd be uh, felt boards and and uh, descriptions of great uh, moral characters and biblical figures and and uh, fantastic things. But um, these were much repeated in my life, and over time uh, they became well worn. I got to the point where. Uh, you know, you're going to tell that story again, and there'd be a little bit of a roll of the eyes and a disinterest. And so as I uh, grew older and became a, a genuine student of the Bible, I was really fascinated to learn that there's an awful lot of stuff in the Old Testament that was not covered in Sunday school. Uh, as comedian Tim Hawkins puts it, there's, there's a lot of parts in the Old Testament that don't make it into the Precious Moments Bible. It's a surprising history. There's, there's all kinds of things in there that, that, uh, that are shocking, that get your attention. Uh, when, uh, uh, when the kids were back from uh, St. Louis Christian College, and I was uh, giving a sermon on sexuality, and I quoted from Song of Solomon, Dakota said, we had a bet going at the school that no preacher would be able to actually quote from Song of Solomon during a sermon. Said, well, I pulled it off. I chose maybe the four most innocuous verses in the whole thing. But it's one of those things that, well, you don't expect that to be there. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament you don't expect to be. There's a lot of hard things in the Old Testament, challenging things that we come across. And in fact, today, a lot of people take exception to the Old Testament. A lot of people feel like they, they like Jesus, but they're not really sure they like this God of the Old Testament because he acts differently than what we expect. He exercises his judgment, for one thing. He rains down judgment on people that have offended him, people that, people that have not been faithful. He, uh, you know, if you read through Job, I remember it's probably been a couple of years ago now, the uh, youth group was looking at Job, and it was a real struggle for a lot of the teenagers to to get through these passages where God seems, in a, in a sense, to be toying with a man's life and try to understand what is, what is that about? The real problem that we have with the Old Testament is it generally misses our new narrative, our narrative of uh, everything is about love and positivism. And whenever I hear people talking about how uh, we need to be positive, you know there's a thread of American Christianity that has taken the power of positive thinking and has sort of meshed that together with the gospel and uh, created this whole new uh, gospel idea. And whenever I hear that, uh, there are these passages in the Old Testament that I like to recall. One of my favorite books, believe it or not, in the Old Testament is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, this is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to read a long passage of this because I like it so much. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utter meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back 
to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where streams come from, they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its filling of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It is already, it, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Don't you feel better? Aren't you, isn't that encouraging? That's an encouraging. Actually, oddly enough, that really is encouraging to me, and I'll tell you why it's encouraging to me. Number one, um, when we are looking at the world around us and we encounter godlessness, and self-absorption, and idolatry, and blasphemy, and heresy, and immorality, and a general disinterest in the things of God. We are tempted to believe that things are worse than they have ever been, but the writer of Ecclesiastes says, no, there is nothing new under the sun. It's always been here. It's always been this way. These problems already existed. That gives me a certain comfort. But what gives me even greater comfort is recognizing that the reality that this writer is describing is a reality that is distinctly pre-gospel. That this is about the futility of life if there is no redemption, if there is no hope, if this is all there is, and we're just toiling until the end, and then we die and everything is over. If there is no hope. All people strive for nothing. And so what, we've, what we have, really, when we're talking about the gospel, when we're talking about the good news, we are looking at a choice between living in a world where absolutely nothing is new and nothing will come to anything new versus a kingdom where in Christ everything is being made new. Everything. And so I look at the world. I say, do we really live in dark times? Is the world really getting darker around us? Well, maybe it is. In some ways, it almost certainly is. The culture around us shuns the gospel. It shuns the hope of Christ. It doesn't look to the church for comfort, for answers. Uh, Often doesn't look to us for anything. Many within the church seem to worship their own comfort more than they worship Christ. Churches across our country are closing doors at an alarming rate as the gospel falls on deaf ears. And we're all asking the same question. Where do we go from here? Is it just steady demise until the Lord returns? Where do we go from here? I want you to understand, church, this morning that dark times call God's people to repentance and renewal. 
Now, I don't mean to say that all dark times are a consequence of our own behavior. Uh, I know you could get that from what I'm saying. Sometimes they are. Sometimes we, we bring hardship on ourselves with our own bad choices. But sometimes hardship just is. Sometimes the world is getting darker regardless of what we're doing. But anytime we face darkness, anytime we face trial, it's an opportunity for repentance and renewal. Paul says to us that our trials build perseverance, and perseverance builds character, and character builds hope. Now, I understand perseverance and character, right? This is what we tell our children when things are not, Things are not going the way they think they ought to go, right? Builds character. Get over it, builds character. We understand that hardship builds character. We understand that it builds perseverance. Why on earth does it build hope? Well, it builds hope for the believer because we know every time the world gets darker, God is still working on a plan to bring the light. Always hope in Jesus Christ. This morning I want to share with you one of those tired Old Testament stories that is, in truth, very unexpected. And so we'll begin reading this morning from Ezra chapter 1, a first verse. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah... The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put in writing, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. I don't know if you understand all the implication of what is happening in this passage, but understand this. A plan of redemption is always in God's nature. A plan of redemption is in God's nature. Now, Ezra is the voice in this book. He doesn't show up in the story until about halfway through what we call the book of Ezra. But basically, he is relating this history before he arrives on the scene The Israelites, of course, had fallen into idolatry, and they had a whole series of prophets that warned them about the fate that would befall them if they didn't correct this problem, that they're serving other gods, that they are unfaithful to their God, and the prophets are telling them, look, God is not going to put up with this forever. There's going to come a time when he's going to allow judgment to fall on you, and that judgment is going to come in the form of a foreign army that's going to come and conquer you. And they don't listen. And it reaches a point where the prophets begin to say to the people, look, you've already failed, and this judgment is coming. You will be overrun. You will be overtaken. You will be dragged off, and you will live in exile, and you'll live there for 70 years. What's interesting is the prophets also say that at the end of that 70 years, God is going to begin redeeming his people. He's going to create a circumstance in which the people are not only freed from their exile to return to Judah, but they are freed with the resources to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city, the holy city of Jerusalem. 
passage says that these things happen in order to fulfill the prophet, the words of the prophet uh, Jeremiah, who spoke God's words. Well, Jeremiah is the one that told us it would be 70 years. He told us that Babylon would be defeated. He told us that a new king would take his throne and that we, he would initiate this return of the people to the land of Judah. Isaiah 45, interestingly enough, gets even more uh, detailed, naming Cyrus by name. I mean, this is one of the coolest things in Scripture, honestly. We have lots of prophecies that are fulfilled over time, but this is one of the really interesting ones because uh, Isaiah in chapter 45 names Cyrus as the one that God will raise up. He will defeat those who have uh, done this to, to Israel. This is kind of one of the interesting things. God uses this enemy nation to overthrow the Israelites because of their unfaithfulness. And he says, and then, then, when time comes to the fullness, I'm going to punish those who defeated you for having the gall to actually attack my people. And so God comes back with Cyrus of Persia, who, who completely devastates the Babylonian Empire and, and who takes over everything. And as he says, he says, the, the Lord has given all the kingdoms of the world. It really, Cyrus controlled all of the known world of the time. His empire was incredible. This is what we need to understand. Even when God allows judgment to fall upon humanity, even when God allows the world to fall into its own darkness, God is planning to light the world through his people. That is true right now. Right now, no matter what you think of the world, no matter what you think of the situation that we find ourselves in, no matter what you think about the future of this country or politics or any of that stuff, the reality is that God has a plan right now to light this world through his people. You say, how could you possibly know that? You have a special revelation? No, I don't have a special revelation at all. This is just who God is. This is God's nature. This is what God says he will do. Now, some, some of us will be thinking, because, you know, this is what we always think. When the world around us gets bad, there's always somebody who says, I, I see the signs. I think Jesus is getting ready to come back. And maybe he is. Maybe the next great light that brings light into our present darkness is the return of Christ himself. But you know what Christ himself said about that? In Acts chapter 1, he says, it's not for you to know the time. And it's in essence, he says, it's none of your business. It's none of your business. Don't worry about when I'm coming back. What you need to worry about is while I'm away, you will be my witness. You will be my light to the world to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So maybe Jesus is getting ready to return. Maybe that's what all the bad news is about. But that's not our concern. Our concern is that we be his witness and his light until that day. Our purpose today is to reflect God's glory to the nations. How do we do that? 
How do we do that, particularly if the world isn't listening? Well, in this great story, God raised up Cyrus, who defeated the captors of Israel. He inspires Cyrus to uh, return the people, give them the freedom to return uh, to Judah to rebuild their temple. He even gives them a whole lot of money to do it. And 45,000, roughly 45,000, venture into the unknown where they have no stronghold, no kingdom, nothing to protect them from enemies. They're just venturing off. Uh, And here's what we need to take from that. Every great spiritual journey begins with a single leap of faith. Now, understand that not everyone left exile. We don't know exactly how many people there were among the Israelites at this time, but but we can estimate that the number was in the millions. So 45,000 who take advantage of this open call. Cyrus says anyone who wants to return can return. 45,000 is actually kind of a tiny minority. It's not that big of a group. I mean, it's a big group to travel across the wilderness, but it's certainly not the whole nation. And there were a lot of reasons for them not to return. Even though they're in exile, by this point, they have a reasonably comfortable life in Babylon. They've got their own communities. They've got their own synagogues. They, they are making money. They're, they're, they're doing okay. They have comforts. And they've been there a long time, which means the ones who can actually remember the old city of Jerusalem, many of them are too old to make the journey now. And the majority of the people that that could make the journey were born in Babylon. That's their home. That's all they've ever known. God creates this opportunity for them to return. That doesn't mean it's necessarily their first choice. Not everyone left. Not everyone faces this hard journey and this nearly impossible task of rebuilding the temple in a city that is absolutely in ruins. For years, my family traveled uh, to the Navajo Reservation doing, doing mission work. And every year that we would be there, God would show his hand somehow There would be some problem that would arise that we wouldn't know how we were going to solve, and then all of a sudden it was solved. There there would be budgets that looked like they were going to be overrun, and then all of a sudden some expense would dissipate. And we would have, sometimes down to the exact dollar, we would have the amount of resources that we needed in order to complete the task. We watched it happen again and again. And we would have these conversations when we would come back home. Did you see what God did? Did you see how God took care of us? Did you see how God answered our prayers and resolved these problems for us that we didn't really have any idea how we were going to resolve on our own? How come we don't see God work like that here back at home? We all came to the same very difficult answer. Back home... We never actually put ourselves in a position to need God. We stay in that space that's comfortable for us. 
at space that's manageable, that's within budget, that's reasonable. We were too safe to actually need God to show up. Ezra chapter 3, the first three verses, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priest Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Now, there's a couple of things we need to understand about this. First of all, uh, God's plan involves a unity of humanity and divinity. God is facilitating all of this. God is empowering this process. He's providing resources, but also the people get there and they give of their own monies to support this project. They, they go out on this venture. They, they are acting. They are doing. They are living the plan. We see this even in the ministry of Jesus, who actually puts on humanity so that divinity and humanity can work through the same person to accomplish the gospel plan. And then we see Jesus entrust disciples, people, with the responsibility of sharing the gospel with the world. We certainly could not make an argument that God needs us, but God keeps choosing to use us. He keeps choosing to incorporate us into his grand design. The company of the exiles enter a land that is completely out of their control, where they are surrounded by people who are at least potentially their enemies. They bring what God provides them through Cyrus, but they commit their own resources, and despite their fear, legitimate fear of the people around them, they act, they serve, and they worship. Now understand, they could have stayed home. They could have played it safe. They accept the invitation to be participants with God in his purpose. And so it says in verses 4 through 6, then in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with a required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those uh, brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, through, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. You see, the glory of the Lord is the first priority. For those times when worship to us seems boring and redundant, <laughs> for those times when you're too tired or, or you're just not in the mood to glorify God, remember that the worship of God, the glory of God, preceded everything else. 
The order of operations here defies logic. It defies safety and comfort. These are people returning to a city in ruins that has no defenses. Do they start with the wall? No, that won't come for another generation. They don't have a wall. They don't even have a temple. There's not even a building for them to hide in if their enemies attack. They just have an altar. This is where everything begins with worship. Certainly some of that is a response to the law, a response to uh, their obligations, the same way that we respond to to commands, the same way that we're obedient. There there are times when, uh, I'll be honest, I arrive here on a Sunday morning in not the greatest of moods, and maybe I worship God out of obedience to God, out of reverence for God, rather than because I feel like worshiping. But there's more to it than that. See, whenever we place ourselves in a position of a dreadful need for God, worship and prayer are a natural reaction. They're the things that we will naturally go to. When we have a dreadful need for God's protection, for His provision, for His presence, when we crave it, we will seek out worship and prayer. So where are we going from here? And what can we learn from these first few chapters in Ezra? For years before I came, this church was engaged in a search for God's plan for our present and our future in this place. And at times, in all honesty, it has been a battle, a battle between our expectations from the past and our expectations of uh, uh, different assumptions about what the future should look like. It is our hope, our prayer, our intent to break free of both and to simply follow Jesus and to practice dependence on him. And so we've been prayerfully planning and working and dreaming towards something new. It is an audacious thing to do because there's nothing new under the sun. You see, this is something that cannot be done by men. Only Christ makes new things. In the coming weeks, I, uh, I hope to share with you some plans, some ideas, some dreams, some hope that we find in the midst of, of our darkness. And to set that against the backdrop of people of great faith who simply live for God. But at the core of all of this, our intent, our objective, our calling, we believe, is to be a reflection to light the darkness. Of course, we want to be a light in this community. Every church wants to be a light in their community. And we've recognized long ago that our proximity to the schools and our relationship with students in this community is an opportunity to be a light in the lives of students and their families. But what do we do with that? And what does that really mean? 
John begins his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The world may be darkening, but it is not the darkness that we need fear. In fact, the darkness might be viewed as an opportunity because the darkness makes the light of Christ stand out all the more. And the light reveals and exposes the deeds of darkness. It's not overcome by them. In all honesty, the greater threat to the church in this century is not the darkness we find ourselves in now. It is the cultural Christianity and the almost gospel that we have been exposed to. Darkness reveals the true nature of our humanity. And over time, it reveals what the writer of Ecclesiastes concluded, that everything that people are living for, everything they've staked their claim around, Everything they strive for is vanity. It comes to nothing. And it's because of that we know the gospel is still good news. If all the world worships is meaningless and it comes to nothing, it is Christ alone who offers redemption, restoration, new life, and real hope. And we, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we are called upon to be a light to the world, but not by our own glory, by reflecting Christ's glory. By reflecting Him, by being Him, by presenting an image of Him to the world around us. If we open ourselves, if we step into the darkness as reflections of Him, we will meet a culture that has a broken moral compass, families that have no foundation, children who have no direction, who've been enchanted by delusion, and who have been frightened by lies. What if our presence in their lives so reflected the glory of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ, that it brought about their transformation. It is the light of who he is in us that has the potential to overcome the darkness. You see, the truth still sets people free. Freedom from sin and death, but also from the darkness in which we find ourselves. And we possess the truth. But if we possess and live the truth only in the context of these walls, then it comes to nothing. It has to go where people are. The challenge for us is not only to know the truth, but to live the truth conspicuously. And we are dreaming and prayerfully seeking 
time when this church can wrap the broken people of our community in the light of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds really mean, doesn't it? High in the sky. What does that even mean? Perhaps when you encounter the brokenness of, of the, the present world, you could come to the conclusion that the, the odds, the obstacles are insurmountable. Here's what we need to remind ourselves of. God eats the insurmountable for breakfast. There is nothing he cannot do. If you look at me, if you look at Caleb, if you look at our elders, if you look at yourself and you come to the conclusion, I'm not capable of doing these things, you're just being realistic. We recognize our own limitations. That's all we're doing is we're coming to the conclusion that we're not God. Surprise, surprise. But it's another thing altogether for us to look at Jesus Christ and say, he can't do these things in our community. Because if we're going to make that claim, we're not being realistic. We've gone to a completely different place. God eats the insurmountable for breakfast. He's not intimidated. He's not afraid. But we will not make the journey unless we understand that our safety and our comfort are overrated. It is time for us as a church. I know this sounds crazy. It is time for us as a church to be less reasonable, less responsible, and more obedient to Jesus. If we are waiting until the road before us gets easy, we will be waiting until we die. If we believe in who Jesus is, if we believe that he has a plan, if we believe that it is his intent to shed light in the midst of all of this darkness, a light that cannot be covered or consumed or overcome, if we are willing to be that light, then we will put our lives on the line and we will believe in the God who shows up. <laughs>